Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Dr. Howard Hendricks once shared this story. Just before World War II in Itasca, Texas, there was a school fire that took the lives of 263 children. It was a horrifying tragedy. After the war, Itasca built a new school with the finest sprinkler system in the world. Never again would the citizens of this town be caught with such a tragedy on their own hands. Honor students were selected to take citizens of the community on tours throughout the new school to show them the finest sprinkler system that had ever been assembled. The town continued to grow, and and seven years after the new school had been built, an addition was needed to handle the growth. As the new construction began, it was discovered that the sprinkler system was never connected to the water supply. I wonder just how many churches function this way. We have all the plumbing for greatness, but we never once plug into the source of our strength. You know, we, we talk about prayer, but how often do our prayers feel lifeless and void? Luke, in the book of Acts, has been telling us about God's movement beyond the city of Jerusalem as the Great Commission has been spreading. Last week, we ended with the advent of a famine in the land and the care and loving compassion of a Gentile church for the mother church there in Jerusalem. We pick up in chapter 12, and we find that the mother church is actually in trouble. Not only do we understand that the famine is growing and building and and taking over, but we also understand that there's a new ruler in Jerusalem who has no love lost for the church. And last Sunday, we know last Sunday was Halloween, and so last Sunday should have been when we talk about ghost stories, but I actually saved the ghost story for today. So let's turn our attention to Acts chapter 12 and consider how we might respond to a ghost at the door. If you've got your place and your able, I would invite you to stand with me as I read the first few verses in Acts chapter 12, beginning here in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was being made to God by the church. Father, I thank you for the prayers of this church, for their concern, for their leader, for their willingness to gather and cover their leader in prayer. May we learn from their example today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So I think it goes without saying that what we're experiencing here, this is bad, right? This is bad, and, and it's about to get it's about to get worse. Uh, and it's hard to imagine things getting worse. There's a famine. There's, there's a, a ruler here who, who doesn't love the church, doesn't love anything about it. You've really got a tyrant on the throne. 
And, and this Herod, understand, this Herod was a bad guy. You know, there's lots of Herods in the Bible. We, we read about the, the first Herod we encounter is the one that killed all the babies in Bethlehem. And we think, man, what a terrible, terrible human being. Well, what we have here is another Herod in a long line of bad Herods. And this is the grandson of Herod the Great, the one that slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem. And this Herod was a politician through and through. If, if he were alive today, he would be someone who governed on the basis of public opinion polls rather than morals or convictions. Would you believe politicians govern on the basis of, of public opinion polls? That's shocking, right? This Herod saw Christians as dangerous and divisive. He saw them as a, as a sect. But he also found that he scored significant political points with his base when he persecuted them. Well, this is a bad combination. You've got a tyrannical ruler who rules on the basis of public opinion. He finds out that by persecuting the church, the, the public opinion that he's paying attention to loves him more. This is a terrible combination. And the first documented casualty of this combination is actually James. He's the first apostle that we know of that was executed. He's one of the sons of Zebedee. He's John's brother. Uh, you can certainly know that there were probably others who were persecuted and executed, but James is the first one that we understand, first one of the twelve that is actually executed here. Verse 3 tells us all that we need to know about Herod. It says that when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. We would call that a populist, someone who governs on the basis of what's popular, what's in, what's cool. He governs in that regard. If the people said, we love Jesus, we love the church, then this Herod would be somebody who'd be no, have no issues persecuting the, the Jews because he had no convictions other than his own power. Well, as what frequently happens with this kind of ruler, Herod's head eventually grew too large for his tiny neck to support. And if you look at the end of chapter 12, you find that this political terror actually meets quite a fitting end. It says, on an appointed day, Herod put his royal robes and took a seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them, telling them about his greatness and all those sort of things. And the people heard it. They were shouting, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I love Dr. Luke's autopsy report here, right? Notice the, the succession of events. It wasn't that he died and then was eaten by worms. He was eaten by worms and then he died. So, so God's judgment against Herod was a worm infestation that ultimately took Herod's life. Isn't that wonderful, right? If you were getting hungry because it's actually noon to your body, I was trying to help you with that just a little bit. So here's James. He's dead. He's likely been beheaded. The Herods had a thing for that sort of uh, execution. And now Peter is in prison, and he knows he's awaiting the very same fate. The only thing that delayed his mock trial and his likely execution is that it happened during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It happened during the Passover, and executions were not allowed during the Passover. So this is what's going on. You've got James whose head has been removed from his shoulders. You've got Peter who's in prison and he's locked up tight. Imagine being in the Jerusalem church in this time when there is famine in the land. Imagine being part of this church. You feel overwhelmed. You feel helpless. 
I can't do anything. I can't help here. I'm the church. I'm not a militia. It's not like we can go bust Peter out of jail. We'll all die if we do that. Man, all we can do is meet for prayer. Isn't it interesting how we so frequently view prayer like this? When you can't do anything else. When all other efforts have failed. It's like prayer is a a matter of last resort. I, I can't do anything else, so I might as well pray. We had some dear friends at a former church who experienced a terrible, terrible health tragedy. I'll spare you the gory details. I'll just tell you it was bad. She had cancer. Things ruptured. She was septic, required massive open surgery, and the wound couldn't be closed. It was bad. It was really bad. She was in ICU for a long time. We've all been there to some degree or another, right? We've had a loved one who's gone through some sort of prolonged health crisis. We've fought, we've faced cancer. We've heard the diagnosis. And during those times, man, you just feel, feel helpless. If it's your kids, I mean, how many of us have been in that situation where our kids have been sick and we have told God, God, give it to me and take it from them? I mean, we've been there. We know. And we feel so absolutely helpless in that moment. That's how they felt when our friend got so sick. There was nothing else we could do. I'll never forget visiting the ICU waiting room, however, to check in on the family. You've been in those rooms before. You know what an ICU waiting room was like. This is before COVID, when you could actually visit the hospital and care for people who were in the hospital. In ICU waiting rooms, everybody's kind of clustered up. You got a family over here in this corner kind of talking quietly. You've got a family over here in this corner, and they're kind of talking quietly. And they're both in their own journey, right? They're both facing their own crisis. They're both facing their own uncertainty of outcome. When I arrived at the ICU that day, though, that ICU waiting room had been converted into a sanctuary, and something remarkable was happening. People were gathered, and they were praying. And this went days on end in one of the most helpless places in the world. Can you think of a more helpless place than an ICU waiting room? That all you can literally do is sit there, wait for the phone to ring, for a nurse to call and say, hey, this is what's going on. And time after time, it's, it's, it's no news. Time after time, it's, it's, it's some sort of setback and you just don't know what's going to happen. That ICU waiting room, the most helpless place in the world, had been converted into a sanctuary. And it was a place where you knew that God was at work. I don't recall how many days that went on. But what I do recall is that our friend survived to bear witness about God's healing power in, in her life and God's work in her family. Prayer may seem like a matter of last resort, but in reality it is in prayer where the church is most empowered. Verse 5 says it very clearly. They were offering earnest prayer. Everything about what that means? Earnest prayer? The, the original word here, that word that's used here that's, transla- that's translated as earnest It actually refers to a sense of of effort being exerted. So there is earnest prayer. There is prayer taking place 
that requires work. There is a sense of stretching or, or straining in that word. That, that prayer that they were offering, it, it wasn't something that was super comfortable. It wasn't something that was incredibly convenient. It was prayer that was likely emotionally exhausting. But they offered earnest prayer. You know, as they gathered there in that place, it, it doesn't even mean that, that they all believed that Peter was going to survive. But it was genuine, and it was earnest. And I'm sure that different people there were, were actually praying different prayers. Some people were praying for Peter's mental fortitude and his perseverance. I mean, he's in a bad spot. He's chained up between, between these, uh, these, these goons, these guards. He's locked behind, behind bars and gates. I mean, he's in a terrible place. Can you imagine if, if you were in that spot, locked up in such an awful place, knowing that the next day you're going to have to face a show trial and potentially be beheaded? Can you imagine how you would feel? So some were probably just simply praying for Peter's mental fortitude, his perseverance. There was no way he was getting out of this. James didn't get out of it. Some were praying for Peter's witness throughout the ordeal. Can you imagine the, prison, the, the guards that were on either side of the Apostle Peter? I mean, they're, they're, they're stuck there as much as Peter is. At least they get to go home in a few hours. But they're sitting there next to the Apostle Peter, the one who preached the first Christian sermon in the church. I mean, Peter, of all people, knows a thing or two about sharing the gospel. So can you imagine the prison guards who were stuck there? And they're praying that, that Peter would have the wisdom to know how to share and there were undoubtedly some in the church who were praying for some kind of miraculous deliverance. But there were some who, as they prayed, were filled with fear and filled with worry, wondering if their name might be called next. To a watching world, there is nothing more ridiculous looking than a group of Christians praying for God's hand to move. You ever think about that? How the world sees us in prayer? That, that, how ridiculous is that? Get up and do something about it. Don't, don't sit and wait. Get up and, and take action. To a watching world, they see prayer as something that is absolutely ridiculous. They see it as weak, as ineffective, as a waste of time, as some sort of salve for our grieving conscience. How is this little home group there in John Mark's house going to change these circumstances. This is the mighty Herod. He was powerful. The majority honored him. Some even worshiped him as a god. His power to harm the church was practically limitless. But in that time, that prayer may have seemed hopeless. It may have seemed helpless. But it was in that place that immense strength was found. And it is there that our passion for the Lord must be stoked. But as we think about our world today, there's so many things about our world today that wants to discourage earnestness from us and discourage passion from us for the things of God. Our present day is characterized not by provoking passion in Christians for the things of God, but our present day is characterized in an era of entertainment. In order to grow churches, entertainment must be replaced with true zeal for the Lord. Give us what is most entertaining with smoke and lights or entertain us with the old-fashioned stuff that we listened to a generation ago. It's no different. 
Our houses of worship are becoming more and more entertainment venues rather than a place where true, genuine passion for the things of God is provoked. At the same time, we've cultivated a a generation that's looking for a show. We've cultivated a generation that's never tasted a vibrant experience with the things of God. I would argue today that we need far more ICU sanctuaries. That we need far more homes like John Mark's. And we need far more clusters of Christians meeting together for earnest prayer. I think about how easily we're moved today. We can be moved by our political affiliations. We can meet with passion and conviction at our county commission meetings. We can gather and celebrate the victories of our favorite sports teams. And we'll put forth effort, won't we? And we will put forth effort to do these things. Think about how much effort it takes to go to a football game, right? I mean, it's not convenient. You've got to park a long way off. You've got to pay to get in the gate. You're going to pay a lot of money to eat there. The seats aren't comfortable. But you're going to go and you're going to put on the colors that you're supposed to wear. You're going to sit there and you're going to watch three hours in the cold on a hard, uncomfortable seat. And man, we eat it up. And if it's a professional game or a college game, we'll pay hundreds of dollars for tickets just to go and cheer on our favorite team. But if the thermostat is a little bit off in the sanctuary, we'll skip church in a a heartbeat. Am I wrong? Should our Christian gatherings with the people of God not take on more significance than our athletic gatherings? Especially when we understand this simple fact, just how close we are in this moment to the God of the universe and just how close we are to the Creator when we gather together for earnest prayer. Second thing I want to point out today, we cannot and must not allow a secular world to diminish our awareness of supernatural realities. You see, when the church is praying, God is moving through the presence of one of his messengers here. Peter is sound asleep, which just tells you how at peace he is with this situation. I can honestly tell you that if I'm approaching my execution the next day, I'm probably not sleeping great. Peter's sleeping great. He's a man who's at peace with his God. He's at peace with himself. He understands that if his number's called, that he finishes the race, he gets his well done. He understands that. And while he is at peace, it's very clear that Herod's not very at peace. Why? He's got a stinking battalion guarding him. He's got all these soldiers guarding him for throughout the night. He's bound with chains. He's locked behind a door. He's behind a big iron gate. You would think that there was an M1 Abrams about to roll up and blow a hole in the side of the door to free Peter. I mean, Herod is clearly not at peace. Peter, in that moment, may have well been stuck on Alcatraz Island and afraid of the water. Undoubtedly, Peter knew he was walking the path that his master had walked, and for him that was an acceptable end. 
But while he's there at peace and Herod is is reeling, the church is praying. And God, in his providence, he delivers Peter in this profound and miraculous way. None of the obstacles that Herod put in the way were any match for the angel of the Lord that delivered Peter. (laughs) It's clear Peter is not some ancient 007 who's making his jailbreak here. I mean, he's, he's out cold. The angel has to come up to him, poke him in the ribs, and say, Get up! Wake up, man! And he's so out of it, the angel has to look at him and tell him how to get dressed. Put your shoes on. Put your cloak on, Peter. Come on, we got to go. In spite of their clear involvement in the story of the Bible, you know, we don't talk much about angels today. Ah, sure, you may have little figurines hiding somewhere in the curio cabinet, your precious moments figurines from a generation ago. We may bring out our angel at Christmas time and place her atop the, the, the Christmas tree or set her prominently in the nativity scene. But it seems that in our modern world, we have relegated angels to myth and symbols. In spite of the fact that the Bible teaches over and over again that angels are real and they have a role in our life. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are designed to serve you. As a person who is saved, angels are meant to be spirits that minister to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and 23 says that you have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2 even tells us this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Be careful how you treat that stranger because he may just be that ministering spirit come to see how you respond. I don't for a second believe, though, that angels are anything like the little pop culture creations that we have made. I would even argue that our white robes and halos are probably a bit of a stretch. But there's no denying the fact that we live in this physical reality, and just behind the scenes of our physical reality is a supernatural reality, and that supernatural reality has the ability to make itself visible whenever such a manifestation is warranted. I believe that. Why do I believe it? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Again, this is not creepy Pentecostal stuff. This is just simple biblical truth. Peter's there asleep, and there's an angel of the Lord right there in his midst. Wake up, man. It's time to go. Get your clothes on. I'm just going to tell you, if somebody wakes you up in the middle of the night, and they're glowing, and they tell you to get dressed, you might ought to just pay attention a little bit. Not saying that it's an angel, but it might be. You see, but we live in this world we're not allowed to believe in that stuff anymore, right? Everything's got to have a natural cause. There is no creator because everything exists. It's a product of physics and gravity and chemistry. You set off a big enough explosion and give enough billions of years to ferment in the galaxy and you're guaranteed to get complex systems out of it. You think it takes faith to be a Christian. There's no such thing as miracles. Everything can be explained except for when it can't. You see, church, when we find ourselves in prayer, we're in that place 
where we are dipping our toes into an ocean of inexplicable glory. Jacob saw in a vision a ladder between heaven and earth where heaven's angels came and went going about their ministry on the earth. And we can't possibly see or know all the myriad ways in which they work, but in spite of our ability to see, we cannot deny the truth of their existence. John G. Payton was a Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. One night, hostile tribesmen surrounded his home, that headquarters for his mission there. They were intent on burning it to the ground and killing all the missionaries. Peyton and his wife prayed all throughout the terror-filled night, asking that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were surprised to see that all the hostile tribesmen had left. A year later, the chief of that hostile tribe came to faith in Christ, and Peyton had an opportunity to ask him what kept them from burning down the house and killing them. That chief replied, Who are all those men who were there with you that night? Peyton said, There were nobody there. It was just my wife and I. And the chief said that there were hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. They circled the missionaries' home so that the tribesmen were afraid to attack. It shouldn't seem so surprising to us when God answers our prayers. What happens? Well, Peter's been set free. The chains are gone, the guards are asleep, the gates are open. I mean, he's out. He's here in the middle of the night. The angel that got him is gone. He's in the middle of the street, in the middle of the night, just been broken out of jail by an angel. God answered the prayers of this church. Where does one go when one is in the middle of the street, in the middle of the night, when one has just been broken out of prison? It's a great question. What an encouragement to know, though, for Peter that his church was up late, shaking that ladder between heaven and earth. Nobody there was sleeping because there was work to be done. Not a passive last resort when all other efforts have failed because there was earnest prayer taking place. And what transpires next is one of the funniest scenes in the Bible. Peter gets to the house, he knocks on the door, and a young lady named Rhoda opens the door. And I love the scene, Peter knocks on the door, it's late, it's dark, it's kind of spooky, you know it is, they're praying, you know, not sure what's going to happen. She cracks open the door because it's believed she's probably a child, all the grown-ups are busy praying. She opens the door, and there's Peter standing there in the flesh. And she doesn't open the door. She slams the door back in his face. And she runs in. She interrupts the prayer meeting. Guys, 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 listen, listen, listen. Can you imagine a seven or eight-year-old in this situation? You, you won't believe who's at the door. Peter's at the door. You guys got to go see. You got to go see. Peter's at the door. And what do they do? Sweetie, you are out of your mind. Some little southern mama Darling, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know. 
They don't believe it so much. They're so convinced that it's just a little girl making up a story that they begin to debate on what could possibly have happened. One thing they suggest is, is that the little girl's just making it up. She's so tired. She's heard the adults praying. God, rescue Peter. She's heard them praying, and that little overactive imagination just kicks into gear, and she heard something outside. She ran to the door, and in her imagination, she knew Peter was there. That's not possible. Or they say, well, you know, maybe she did see something. They say, maybe it was Peter's ghost. Because Peter is already dead. Finally, this is probably me, if I'm the parent at this point. I'm trying to settle the situation down because earnest prayer is taking place. We can't be distracted by this little girl. So I finally get up and I say, let's go see who's out there. And we march to the door and we grab the door handle and we open the door and who's there? Peter in the flesh. Well, hello, Peter. Fancy seeing you here. That's what you've been praying for. You've been asking the God of heaven and earth to free Peter, and the God of heaven and earth freed Peter. God moved. Why? Because the church gathered for earnest prayer. And God responded in a dramatic way. I'll be the first to admit, I don't always understand why God answers some prayers with yes and some prayers with no. I imagine that the church meeting in John Mark's house here, I imagine the church there would likely say the same thing. Why did God spare Peter's life in such a dramatic way but let James be executed by the sword. I don't know the answer to the question. And the church meeting in John Mark's house didn't know the answer to the question. And no one throughout history knows the answer to the question. That answer is for God's mind and God's mind alone. We ask the same question in my ICU sanctuary. Why did my friend pass away? Why did my friend survive? Why so many other friends that we were praying for did not survive? All were being prayed for. Those are mysteries, and those mysteries are for God and God alone to know and show to us at the appropriate time. But there's no denying the basic fact of this that God responds to the earnest prayers of his people. And I imagine that the church probably earnestly prayed for James too. And even though God didn't spare James like he did Peter, it doesn't mean that God didn't answer the church's prayers for James as well. I want to ask an important question today. Why is it that we don't see God move like this today? Maybe you're like me. Maybe you feel like that. It just seems like we're losing far more battles than we're winning. Right? 
I mean, it, just, it feels like that we're up against an immovable mountain. And there are days where I feel like the church is about as relevant to our community as a rotary telephone. And if you own a rotary telephone, you know how relevant that is. That reality is seen every week in our corporate gatherings. The Barna Group found that 10 years ago in 2011, 43% of Americans said that they went to church on a weekly basis. By February of 2020, that number had dropped 14 percentage points to 29%. And one thing that pollsters tell us about Americans is that Americans notoriously lie about their church affiliation in public polling because they give the right answer, not the accurate answer. And so it's very likely that there is a far smaller number of people who are actually attending church on a regular basis basis. And that may be discouraging. Well, let's be honest. It's not maybe discouraging. It is discouraging. But in spite of that discouragement, let us not forget the lesson of Gideon's army. The larger the fighting force, the more likely it is that man gets the glory. The smaller the fighting force, the more likely it is that God gets the glory. As we look around, we find that our worship centers have been depleted by a pandemic that seems to know no end. I have a friend in Hall County. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago. He said he's had to bury 15% of his congregation due to COVID-19. Those are people that don't come back. They're not YouTube viewers that will come back when the coast is clear. Those are people that seats will be empty until they're filled by somebody else. We likely find ourselves, however, in just the right place to redirect our attention to the ultimate source of our power. And instead of our prayers simply being the equivalent of a ghost at the door, what if our small groups recommitted to times of earnest prayers? We want small groups to meet together for fellowship, but what if small groups took an initiative to not just meet together for fellowship, but would meet together from time to time in one another's homes, not with the purpose of eating fried chicken, but meeting with the purpose of earnest prayer. Earnest prayer for the church. Earnest prayer for the community. Earnest prayer for the lost. What if we actually believe that prayer meeting in the local church was something that was actually worthwhile? What if we actually treated prayer meeting like a prayer meeting? Because I believe this wholeheartedly. God's work is far more than just a ghost at the door. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's not something that's been contrived in the mind of a child. We've seen God work through time and space and history again and again and again. And I believe that we are living in a generation that can see God move once more. It's not a ghost at the door. It's the real thing. We have proven over and over again, God works in the flesh, in the lives of believers, and in the life of his church. What if the biggest reason that we simply don't see God move like that is for the simple biblical truth of this? We have not because we ask not. What if we were to join together and truly ask the God of the universe to change our lives? 
and to change our land. I believe that's a prayer that God is eager to answer. Do you join me together in prayer? God, thank you for a church meeting in the middle of the night, praying for its incarcerated leader with no guarantees that he would survive, no guarantees that he would be freed. The only things that seemed certain is that he was going to die the next day. But God, they didn't give up. They didn't stop. And they continued to pray. And you moved in a way that's inexplicable, unimaginable. Lord, we look at our days today and we think some things are just so far gone. People quit going to church. Two years of this pandemic and new habits have been built. God, can you really do something here? In this place, in these churches today, that are seemingly filled with much apathy. Can you really move in this place? And so God, would we have a heart's burden to shake that ladder between heaven and earth to see you blow our minds with what you can do? And so, God, we care about our community, and we care about the lost, and we care about those who need Jesus so much, but, Lord, we humbly admit that right now in this place, we need fresh fire in our own lives. In a sense, we need an angel to come poke us in the side and say, wake up. This is real. This is serious. There's work to be done. So God, we seek your face. And we seek your movement. More than a ghost at the door. But really, truly moving in our lives today. Jesus name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 10:45. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.